jokes on you. I'm starting anyway. Because mm. what would this podcast be if it didn't include last minute Googling oh, on fuck. air? It's not, is it? Algae are sometimes considered plants and sometimes considered protists, a grab bag category of generally distantly related organisms that are grouped on the basis of not being animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, or something else. You know what? It's fine. Algae is a fungus now. It's a fungus emotionally. It Honestly, though, it really is. It truly is. Welcome to Pantry Staples, everybody. The podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Marika. And I'm Emily. And we are one, not even one minute in. I, honestly, this is way more cohesive than it could have been. Do you know what? Why don't we try and do this? Like, we're going to change it up today. Are Ooh, you ready? Yes. I'm going to be a professional. I'm not going to curse. I'm, besides that quick last minute Google, I'm going to tell you some facts. Okay. And then we're going to go. Perfect. Get ready. Hold on to your hats, kids. When was the last time you were at the beach? <laughs> when was the last time I was at the beach? Oh, um, oh, I went the other day with Perry. We went to the seawall. That was very nice. That's very nice. We have a theory that you need to be by water because that's where mainly water. Like recognizes like. You got to get into there. You've said that on the podcast maybe every other episode. For as You're long welcome. As well. I cre- have no memory. <laughs> I am <laughs> unsure as to what's going on around me at all times. But no, uh, my point was... Like seeing all the sand, seeing all the algae, seeing yeah. all the like things. I was like, yeah, there's some good stuff here. What about you? When's the last time you went to the beach? Um, I was actually at the beach on Monday. Hmm. So what was that? Three days ago? Two days ago? Nice. What'd you do? I met my mom. Cute. Or actually, she picked me up from the bus loop. Aww. And then we went there to just like let Frankie run free Ugh. and chase all the birds off the beach. Because that's her favorite hobby. <laughs> I love a dog with a hobby, you know? She's just like, she... Like, it's manic, (laughs) but she's, like, also, like, so joyous, just, like, sprinting, like, so far for, like, frankly, a very small and fluffy beast, just, like, every single bird's, and the birds are just kind of, like, ugh, like, you, you can't catch me, but, like, I'll go over here now. Um, petitioned to create a new show called The Bird Watch starring Frankie. <laughs> it's like Baywatch. But it's just it's... slow motion running with like her little like yeah. fluffy ears flapping up and down. Honestly, people would watch it. It'd be great. Except for all the people who were like, It's like, oh, please. Everyone just watch the beautiful dog. There's a man over there just like shooting up and swearing. So like... <sighs> Oh, the beach a wild time anyway it was great and then she stunk up our entire car like of course the most like it was like full like we just thrown some seaweed and clams like in the trunk mm, incredible yeah we like went out to like do some shopping got some groceries and came back and it was like oh she's so cute though then she had a bath and then she was very clean oh okay anyways we have to get back to business <laughs> I told you I'm doing professional today. Are you yeah, ready? That's so, why I personal. That's why I derailed you on purpose. God damn it! <laughs> um, human consumption of algae or phycophagy, ooh, developed thousands of years ago, predominantly among coastal peoples and less commonly some inland people. Obviously, this makes sense. Why on earth would you be eating seaweed if you're not by the sea? <laughs> so, in terms of quantity and variety of species of algae eaten, phycophagy is and has been most prevalent among the coastal peoples. So, southeastern Asia, um, ancient and modern Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, Filipinos, and Hawaiians. Interesting. I never makes would sense. have thought of... Yeah, I guess southeast Asia. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I don't think of those seas as having seaweed, which I know is... Very incorrect. I think all seas have the weeds. 
It just doesn't that's sound... That's not a joke. I think that's a genuine statement. No, I know. I think, yes. Okay. All right. So, would you like to take hazard a guess as to when the earliest archaeological evidence for the consumption of algae was found? Um, I don't know how time works, but um, Bronze Age? I don't know when Bronze Age is. <laughs> you know I can't remember that. Okay. Well, then, new one. Guess where it was the earliest Ooh. found. Off the coast of BC? No, but I love that we went there. I don't know. They found some very old stuff. Yeah. BC's so weird. I know. Okay. Like, do you ever go to some of the... Like, you go to the islands. Yeah. Sometimes you look at those places and you're like, my goodness, this is some prehistoric nonsense up in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was not BC, but I love that you went. Cool. Uh, we are talking Peru, baby. Ooh. Yep. I wouldn't... I Yeah. Okay. I don't think if Peru was that coastal. Nope. But I don't know geography, so no please one continue. Does. No one on this podcast. <laughs> no, not a single person on it. <laughs> no one in this room. Nope. <laughs> um, anyways, so in an ancient midden, which is basically just a garbage dump, yes. uh, along the coast of Peru, we have kelp found. Uh, this is usually dated to about 2500 BCE. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So a good chunk of time away. Lots of different sites throughout mm-hmm. Peru that it's been found. Um, let's see. These indicate that marine algae was employed by ancient Peruvians to supplement their diets. Makes sure. sense. Yeah. Why else are you eating weeds from the sea? It's a vegetable. Yeah, exactly. Pre-salted. Exactly. Pre-salted. Um, so, in I'm just going to go through this and give you a bunch of different like regions. Mm-hmm. That's how I've grouped it. Yeah. So, Central America, because we just left Peru, uh, it's called Tequitat. Equitlatl. Yep. By the Aztecs. And it grew in not just like the seas, but it's grown many freshwater lakes. And that's the thing I think about algae oh. that we always want to like think it's like, okay, when you think of seaweed, you think of the ocean. But like pond scum is algae too. Okay. This and I'm is, not getting mm. specific about it here. I'm gonna tell you about algae as whatever form I want to tell you about it. Okay, so this is another question. Is all seaweed technically algae or is algae a type of seaweed? All seaweed is algae. Okay. Unless there's a kind that I don't know about, but like anything that you're visualizing, like, ew, that touched me. I'm in a lake. Gross. Sure. Or in the ocean, I guess. Not a lake. Um, That is seaweed and that's algae. Okay. Algae can be anything from those really long, like ribbony rope ones Mm -hmm. that are like eight feet long sometimes. Huge. And go really down into the depths. I love those. Yeah, they're really cool. Or it can just be like the little like greeny specks on the top Mm. of a pond. So it's got quite... It's a... Flora in water? Sort it's a of. fungus. God damn it. Um, yeah, and also it's a portable snack because all you need is like a gross pond and you can have some algae. <laughs> Just swim with your mouth open and you're good. I have something about that. Anyways. Um, so, grew in many freshwater lakes, ponds, and anywhere there was still alkaline water. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Its uses were described by the Cortez ex, uh, expedition. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um they described it as being gathered using nets and dried into cakes that were sold in markets. Oh. Which this is a way that we see being done here in like Peru and also like Central America. We also see this same technique being done at lakes in uh, Africa. Oh, cool. Which is really cool. I'll talk mm. about that in a minute. Europeans compared the way it was eaten to cheese and noted that people traveled with it and ate it daily. So what a great snack. It's mm. like an enormous source of protein. 15 grams of it is... 15 grams of, like, any sort of algae, well, not any sort, but, like, most the, that I was, like, the algae that they're consuming, is equivalent to 100 grams of, like, meat. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like huh. an insane, like, superfood. It's a superfood. Gwyneth, <laughs> get on this. Um, anyways, so it was still a food source until the late 1500s, um, but then ponds and lakes are being drained to build cities right. and towns, and it's becoming rare and rare, and its use as food declined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that this probably has something to do with, like, indigenous culture being kind of eroded by colonizers. For sure, and probably the narrative, like the hunter gather narrative being like the hunter is the better yeah. and more efficient way to eat when actually it's not if you're looking at actual nutrients and grams huh okay yeah of yeah. course capitalism striking again truly and also just like the idea of like i don't want to eat what the savages eat i want to eat what i eat mm-hmm. um which whatever uh-huh the only joy in life is learning new foods um but lake Texcoco still is an active living spirulini, spirulina, sorry, culture. Mm. Uh, So 1960s, it was discovered again by French researchers in Mexico and Africa. Um, In Africa, a researcher noticed that flamingos lived on spirulina and krill, which also consumed the spirulina algae, and that the birds had a longer lifespan. Um, The color in the algae are actually what cause the shrimps to have that color which then causes the flamingo to have that color so it's not just like the krill or whatever that they're eating it's the algae makes the krill makes the flamingos yeah i love that so that's like why it's pink to orange to red that's cool Um, my grandma used to take spirulina tablets really was she orange no they were always green oh but was she orange no oh good to know she is just a lady just a lady doing her thing taking a lot of vitamins (laughs) now let's move from uh, South America and Central America. I was like, where was it? Where was I? Um, Africa? To Africa. Flamingos? Yes. Um, because we're talking about the same kind of like algae here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Used as food in 9th century CE in the Great Kanem Empire of Central Africa, which mm. includes Lake Chad in the south. Parts of Africa where it's readily available, it's still part of the daily diet. We actually have um, on unesco like their website Mm. discussing it yeah like they talk about this cultural practice being still very much alive and well and like women going out and like harvesting all of this drying it into cakes selling it at markets or selling it to other countries actually like further like african countries that's so cool how big are the cakes like are they like little like pocket size snacks yeah like small yeah yeah i don't think it would be very easy to get one to like yeah bigger because it's it's also like you want to carry it yeah yeah huh okay cool Um, so it's also a very much like kind of like a family practice and like Mm. very culturally significant in that it's passed from mother to daughter for generations. So when we're talking about uh, like generational knowledge, like it's so significant to be able to have that to pass down. Um, So basically rainy season, wet algae is scooped into clay pots. It's drained through a cloth and then it's dried or baked in the sun on circles of sand. And then after 20 minutes of drying, it's cut into squares called dihe. The Mm -hmm. dihe are sold in markets throughout the region. Like I said, Uh, they're served with millet, beans, fish, or meat. Um, it's a, like, as I said, a huge protein source. It's a vegetable source of B12, high in iron, rich in vitamins, carbohydrates, enzymes. It's essential fatty acids as well. It's Absolutely. a superfood. Like, genuinely, I can't get over this. And this is the thing, too, is, like, when you Google eating algae, you're not talking about the history. It's talking about, like, the future uses of it. Mm. I read so many articles being like, this is the food of the future. This is what's going to keep us meeting the population demands, which, again, we could meet them right now if we weren't just so stupid. Yep. Um, and, like... Oh, we're going to use this in space. Astronauts love this. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
Interesting. Yeah. So what about the the history of the indigenous knowledge and Yeah. No. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. To like have this like a complete erasure of that like identity previously and being like, have you heard of this new thing? Which I think we have a lot of that in food culture in general, but it was quite sad. Uh, 1960s, French start harvesting the spirulina on larger scales. 1974, United Nations declares it a superfood. Uh, in case you're wondering what it is, technically it is a single-celled organism that is in the shape of a spiral. It can be 0.5 millimeters in length. It is cylindrical and an open left-handed helix. Cool. No. But it's like, okay, like it's an organism, so is it like... Shut up. <laughs> it is a fungus, because I've decided. Okay, cool. Thank yeah. you. I feel like emotionally it is a fungus and that's all that really matters. Well, I think the fact where it's like, is it a plant? Is it a, it's its own thing. It's, its, it's own an thing. algae. It's doing its thing. Yeah, algae. And it has like little spores of it. So I feel like that was a brand. Does it spore? No. no. <laughs> um, it Well, actually it grows with sunlight, right? So, which mm. is why when you look at, um, it's again, articles that I read about the production of this in a commercial sense is they've had to kind of, rejig how they thought that that would work because one of the things that keeps like i said there's the really long ones that go deep mm, into them mm-hmm. but most of this algae is grown on the surface because it needs photosynthesis to occur right so once you get too much algae bloom yeah it stops the sunlight getting through it so then it decreases production so how do you do that on a larger scale and then they all die right mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so they have some ways that they've done it. There's, like, some tubes and some stuff to, like, move it around and whatever. And, like, commercially viable options for it. But that has been a struggle in terms of, like, getting it out there. Also, trying to convince people to eat pond scum is kind of hard, apparently. Weird. I'll I mean, do it in a second. Of course, if you call it pond scum. Yeah, marketing isn't great on that one. No. Um, so, we're done in Africa. And we're now moving to where? The most tropical of destinations. Hawaii. Ooh. Um... I read, it was very cute, an article about this man who basically was given a grant to go and learn from the people who, like, the elders who understand the cultivation and, like, care of limu, which is what they call uh, algae, like, seaweeds and that sort of stuff in Mm -hmm. Polynesian languages. Um, There's a few different, like, spellings, translations, but that's mostly what it's called is limu. Cool. Uh, And he was talking about how when you see in your mind's eye, like, a picture of Hawaii, what you're seeing is beaches and like this gold gorgeous sand and water but what it actually is is so much about this seaweed and Mm. it's crazy that with like obviously climate change is a part of it but also like just uh, you know a million and one factors and a lack of like care towards it it's disappearing Mm -hmm. but that's why it's so important that like people do reach out to learn how to do it um anyways they use it regularly. In olden times, limu was the third component for a nutritionally balanced diet consisting of fish and poi, which is taro. Taro, root. yep. Mm-hmm. Limu primarily supplied variety and interest to their dishes. Right. But it was also, as I said, a significant amount of vitamins and other minerals. Um, added in stews, poke salads as a condiment, adding zest to meals, all that good stuff. Now, it has legend, or legend says that it was discovered and prepared by Hawaiian women during the, during the time of Kapu, which is when restrictions were placed on society based on religious and Hawaiian cultural practices. So something very similar to what happened, uh, like, uh, with uh, Indigenous Canadians, mm. uh, where, you know, braids are cut off, you're stuck yeah. in residential schools, you're not allowed to practice your religion, speak your language. You so can't this was, practice yeah. your traditional, yeah, your traditional hunting, fishing, whatever. So exactly. you've got to... Which, I don't know why, I'm so stupid, but it just didn't occur to me that that would be something that would happen in Hawaii, because I 
like mm. completely buy into yeah. the idea of just like Hawaii. It's a place where you go for vacation. There's no one who's actually living there, but it's such an incredibly rich history and like oh see culture. I I feel like I do the opposite where it's like it's like no it's so great like they just like they're living there and like they're having a nice time and just like being mm. all Polynesian and yeah no, no not having a nice time no. it was a rather rough one but it's um, interesting that that's fairly recent then too yeah. that they've I, think I mean I'm they sure they were eating this much 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 before but the idea of like having it. I mean, nobody just picks this up, no. I think, when it's, like, times are plentiful. And you live in, like, on an island. Yeah. Like, you're an island nation and surrounded by oceans and algaes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyways, ni- or 1819 was when Kapu was discontinued. Um, only recently identified as something that Hawaiians have known for decades. Uh, there are, throughout Hawaiian islands, 600 different kinds of algae. Whoa! So, of course, they're eating it. That's Duh. so cool. Now, what else is really cool about this is that limu was used in ho'oponopono, mm-hmm. ancient Hawaiian process of conflict resolution. <gasps> so, injured and accused parties gathered to pray, seek forgiveness, and eat limu together. Uh, and kala leaves as a symbol of reconciliation. So... So it's been a part of the it's culture. It's been a big it's like deal. A ritual, yeah. yeah. Which is really cool, I thought, to learn. Like, again, just nice to see, like, when food does take such a central role in, like, our lives. Like, you break mm-hmm. bread, you do all of those things, you, you know. It's Anyways. elevated to that status yeah. of, like, yeah, it's not just eating for sustenance. It's, it's eating for culture. Like, and intentional. Eating. Yes. Um, now, we're done in Hawaii. We're going to go over to Ireland. Ooh. Yeah. Because, again, it's on the water, baby. Yes. Um, Irish Times discussed how carrageenan moss pudding has been consumed for quite some time oh. in Irish households thanks to the seaweed's natural health benefits. It's often eaten to alleviate coughs, throat issues, and chest ailments because of its expor... I don't remember writing this word. Expectorant. There we go. Oh, my God, Emily. I think that's a typo. Anyways, it has uh, antiviral properties is what I'm saying. <laughs> also a good source of vitamins and minerals. What so, kind of, sorry, what kind of moss or algae is it? It's uh, carrageenan, which is the kind of algae. Like, carrageenan? Carrageenan, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wait. It's purple. Like red. Is this the stuff that like thickens oat milk? Probably. Hang on. It's a thickener. That's what it is. C-A-R-R-A-G-E-E-N-A-N. It doesn't have the A-N at the end in mind, but yeah. Carrageen? I'm sure it's the same thing. Hmm. But yeah, it's a thickener. That's literally... Listen, I'm getting there. Yes. So... It's an algae. Cool. Really cool, right? (laughs) So basically, you take this, like, red moss, Mm. you soak it in water to, like, revive it, then you boil it in milk, and then this removes the, like, the jelly from it so that it's thickens up and makes a pudding it also takes the color so you get like a pink jelly yeah you get a, and like you add it to cream so you get this pink creamy pudding oh that sounds kind of good i know i want to have it so bad i was like when we're in ireland we're definitely eating that <laughs> um so then the strands of the carrageenan are tossed out egg yolk sugar vanilla are added to the mixture to form a pudding that's pretty neat now let's talk about immigrants from ireland mm-hmm and how food brings us to our homes. Um, 1847, Daniel Ward was sailing off the coast of Boston when he spotted gold. And by that I mean purple, because it was the seaweed. So he had immigrated from Ireland. Working as a fisherman, he sees this red algae beneath the ocean surface, and he's like, oh my god, I know what that is. Irish moss, baby. Um, Back home in Ireland, the Irish as we have just talked about, use this for puddings. They also use it to thicken um, a variety of things and also to clarify beer, which I oh, thought was pretty neat. Yeah. Weird. 
this is the thing we don't talk about enough clarifying agents wild i don't even know like what do you, what's the process in clarification i have no idea but we don't talk about it enough or like fining and wine like that sort of <gasps> stuff yes. yeah Hmm. Anyways, so he sees this opportunity to tap into a market that there just really isn't here. Right. So he stops being a fisherman. He sets up camp in a small coastal town called Skitchwaite, midway between Boston and Plymouth. Sure. Plymouth. 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 So, anyways, he's like, I gotta, I gotta get in on this game. So. This Irish moss, once it's dried, can be sold to companies for a variety of uses. They grind it into, like, a powder, Mm -hmm. um, broken down in fresh water, like I said. Um, It was already known before he started this business as a useful emulsifying and suspending agent. Uh, 1847 patent in England claimed it as... uh, claimed a carrageen gelatin for manufacturing capsules, while 1855 patent in Massachusetts suggested using Irish moss to coat wool prior to carding in order to loosen the fibers and reduce static electricity. Um, cool. Yeah, the later patent cites that the Irish moss was an ideal candidate due to the abundance and cheapness of the material, it being an almost worthless product on most parts of our seacoast. Ah! Yeah. Except that it has all of these... All of these crazy properties and also, like, very good for you to eat. Uh, World War II, mossing industry boomed, also spreading into Canada. Just one year, the Canadian production of Irish moss rose from 261,000 pounds dry weight in 1941 to over 2 million pounds by 1942. Whoa! Why? Because agar, a competitive gel product that had been predominantly made in Japan, had been cut off as a result of conflict. Okay, I was going to ask about agar. So it's yeah. not the same thing and just a different name for it. It's like a different... It's a different kind of moss. It's a different seaweed situation. Or not situation. moss, yeah, seaweed situation. Which I'm actually not going to talk a ton about, so there you go. No, that's fine. Um, I think that's... Okay, well, cool, because interesting to me that it's still used today. Because whenever mm-hmm. I saw, like, carrageenan or whatever in, like, an ingredient in almond milk, oat milk, mm-hmm. whatever, I was, I was like, oh, like... I, like, I don't know why I assumed that it was, like, more chemically. chemically. I assume that the way that it is currently being done is very chemically. Like, Probably. they have to do a lot, yeah. I think, to work with it. But, yeah, the um, the base characteristics of it are just, like, this is really good for thickening. And it's cool. That, but I think it's cool that it's still I'll the same. As well. Yeah. It's still the same thing. No, it's totally. Like, yeah, it still works. Cool. Ain't broke. I tell you. Um, so... Carrageen moss takes center stage. 1949, five American companies that produced the purified Irish moss extract. My God, extractive, including Crimco Corporation in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and Kraft Food Companies in Chicago. Is this a start of Kraft, or this is just a different thing that they're? It's one of the many things that they do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this situate this town. Yes. It's got jobs that's being provided by mossing. Mm-hmm. Till 1960s. Lucien Rousseau was a local buyer and Situate's last Irish moss king. Um, there's a gentleman named Hawk Hickman who mossed for over 30 years and wrote two books on the subject. Recalls his days on the ocean with Rousseau provided him with a boat and a rake. You worked for yourself, he reminisced. The harder you worked, the more you made. You had fabulous camaraderie with all of your buddies <laughs> you went out with and the best tan of anyone in town. You were part of a 130-year-old tradition. So I love that it's it's, called mossing. Yeah, it's really cute. And like, there's one story about this woman who is 5'2 and one of the only female mossers. And she's just out there being like, what do you want? I'm going to do it. Let's go. Um, Give me a rake. Let's do this. And it's it's really cool because it's like you wait until like the morning and kind of night, like when the tides are kind of low, Mm. I guess, so Mm -hmm. that you can go out there and kind of harvest everything up. Um, And yeah, made major money that way you would dry it on the sands of the beaches which again part of why they can't do it so much anymore is because 
you know, there's the commercial aspects of it, yeah. obviously. And it did get here. Over the next 30 years, price of moss rose from 1.75 cents per pound in the 1960s to 10 cents per pound by 1990. Um, mechanical dryers were right. a thing that were introduced. Smaller companies merged to become larger ones, obviously. Um, and according to Hickman... Pardon? Oh, sorry. Yeah, and according to Hickman, more and more youngsters got motors instead of rowing out every day. Uh, Large companies started to look for cheaper sources of carrageen, so it was basically being, um, like, the labor was being exported to right. Asia. Of course. Uh, Philippines were... and Southeast Asia, specifically. Sorry, were no. they, like, pl- like planting or, like, making, no. like, forcing them? No, they were just going out. It's out there. It's just already out there naturally. The They're thing. just... When this first guy saw it, he was just like, damn. Look at this. It's in the water. It's floating free. I got to do this. One yeah. of the only businesses I think that you can probably do with, like, you basically just walk in and grab something and you're like, I got cash in hand now. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that was really cool. Like, this history of it is so, like, the history of algae in consumption is quite large overall. Yeah. But it has, like, this very specific tiny history there, which I thought was nice. Um, mm-hmm. Now, where are we going? Japan. Cool. We're on a real tour to tour de monde yes we are um so records indicate that japan have been collect or people in japan have been collecting seaweed since ancient times shinto traditions dating from the 700s show people offered seaweed at shrines and in the 800s official reports list nori among acceptable payment methods for taxation oh. i know um tao code was enacted in 701 it was already included in the form of taxation Local people were described as drying nori in the Hitachi province, uh, and harvesting of nori was mentioned in Izumo province, Fudoki, showing that nori was used as a food from ancient times. Yes. Utsubu, Monogatari, written around 987, recognized as a common food. So it's, like, people are talking about it. It's just like, yeah, it's, 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 it's huge. It's, it's huge. a big, big... Yeah. Which, of course it is. Like, it's the first... Big deal. Place that comes to mind in terms of seaweed eating is But Japan. did you know that it didn't originally look like these tiny little thin sheets? Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. How could it? It was stewed before. Oh. Yeah. Or not stewed, but like as a paste form, basically. What does nori look like when it's like uh, wild? Or like what does the actual plant look like? Oh, I didn't actually super look very closely at it. Let me just pull that up real quick. I can also do that. Nori in the wild. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize it was going to be that kind of seaweed. Yeah, it's the little one that you know that kind of has like, it looks oh. like um, like little poppy bits on it. Okay, yeah, so they really have to like process it to get oh, the yeah, sheets. Oh yeah, that's the thing mm-hmm. about it is like, it's being used as a, like a paste and then it becomes consumed as a sheet in, um, when is it here? 1750. Oh, It was okay. invented in, uh, in Asakusa, Edo. Uh, the Edo period through the movement of Japanese paper making. So basically right. what they would do is they would chop it all up, lie it flat, and let it dry on these racks that they had for making paper. It also helped because it made standard sizes of them so you could sell them. That's so smart and cool. I know. I mean, and it's kind of the same as like making it into a cake. It's just like a yeah. different form of cake. And that's the thing. Look at this. You could just take it with you wherever you want. People... So good. People are the same everywhere. Ugh. We all have the same ideas. We're all just like, hey, if you know what's a great idea, eating something that's going to give my body what it needs and I can do it when I'm walking. And it's like salty and delicious and good for me. Yep, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so paper making. That's yes. great. Cultivation Perfect. of nori, however, didn't begin until the 1600s. So obviously this is before we are talking about making it into paper, but they are actively cultivating this 
in the 1600s. Yes. Um, Tokugawa Yasu, sorry, um, came to power and moved the capital of Japan from Kyoto to Edo. Uh, mm-hmm. He wanted fresh fish every single day. So what did he do? He says, fisherman, get me some fish. Yes. So there's this new demand. Fishermen built holding pens for the fish and soon noticed that seaweed readily grew around the stakes that held their nets in place. They began to purposely drive bamboo stakes into the ground to promote algae growth and later built a more efficient horizontal net system along the sea surface. So it became a stable, nori became a stable income source on its own right as a staple in people's diets. 1800s, nori is dried in sheets. Like I said, in like a larger scale. So you're, it's like two, two farms in one, fish and seaweed. I love it. So smart. So smart. Uh, 1948, the nori disappears. <gasps> this is a murder mystery in the middle of this. The what? nori is getting murdered. What is it getting murdered by? Uh, World War II. Of course. I was like, mm, 1948, yep. who could it be? Who could it be? Um, so previous years, like, they had seen lower levels of yield, which makes sense. Climate changes, like, fluctuations. Industrialness, um, industrial, probably. all of this. Like, a series of severe typhoons combined with pollution from growing industrialization. Dead. What it actually was, what? was the bombs that they'd let off underwater, though. Like, to oh. sink ships. Like, they had blown up. Like, obliterated all the nori? They'd obliterated or- the beds that the nori were in. So, but they didn't know this at the time. They're just like, well, the water's here. What the hell? So, timing is absolutely fucking terrible for this. Pardon my language. I really <laughs> was trying. Um, you have all of these soldiers coming home from war, and they're starving, and there is no food in sight. Yeah. And you're just like, hmm, seems like a bad time. Yeah. They're like, um, sorry that we also blew up the food source. Yeah. But they didn't know this yet. No. So, majority of the fishing fleet bombed. Food imports cut off. Yep. This is especially significant. The nori mm-hmm. doesn't happen. At the same time, other side of the world in England, Dr. Kathleen Mary Drew Baker had become enthralled by a mysterious pink algae scum that grew along the shores of Manchester where she lived. So she spent her entire career becoming an expert on this algae. So from her seaside laboratory, Drew Baker set to work studying Porphyra umbilicalis, a nori relative known by English bakers as laver. So, again, the Brits are using, or, like, the English are using this as well as, like, a a baking aid. And it had always been there. It had always been there. It's been something they did. Yeah. But then she noticed for some months of the summer, it would mysteriously disappear. And she's like, where does it go? So she was like, I gotta, I gotta ask some questions. I gotta figure things out. I gotta mm-hmm. dig into this. I gotta dive down. Nine was years. she diving? No. Oh, okay. But I love that. Well, um, we don't know for sure. Not confirmed or substantiated okay, one way or the other. Fine. Okay. Nine years, she attempts to grow the leafy fronds of this algae from spores. Nothing seems to work. <gasps> she uses the word spores, so I'm allowed. Nailed it. <laughs> um, she adds oyster shells as a substrate. There you go. Fuzzy pink filaments of a species known as Conchocellus rosea covered the old oyster shells placed in the tanks. Mm-hmm. But then she realized, this isn't a new species after all. It's another phase in this Forfira's life cycle. Oh. Yeah. So the heat of the summer and storms arrive. This algae releases the spores that then settle into deeper, cooler water where they ride out the turbulent weather in this, like, pink, like, Fluffy stage? Yeah, this fluffy stage. So she names this life stage Conchocellus in recognition of the false species previously named. 
she writes the letter, publishes it in October of 1949 in, in the edition of Nature. I don't know uh-huh. what that is, but it's publication. It's a scientific journal, yep. yes. She outlined her discovery, and back in Japan, everyone's like, well, good to know. <laughs> pretty, pretty chazzed about that. Would, would have liked to know this earlier. Yeah, Great. They're like, I guess we're not going to be hungry anymore. Uh, Dr. Sokichi uh, Segawa of Kyushu University realized that the issue surrounding the nori crops had everything to do with his previously unknown life stage of the Forfira genus. Both the nori of Japan's shores and the lava of the United Kingdom were the same species. So Uh he realized, okay, they're growing at the same rate. They need the same things. During World War II, the U.S. Armed Forces set underwater mines that exploded in almost every one of Japan's ports. Not only did they decimate the shipping fleet, like we've discussed, they destroyed the shellfish beds needed for completion of the nori life cycle. So there's nothing for them to latch onto. They have no homes. They have no homes. Okay. So combine this with the unusually volatile typhoon seasons, there's nowhere to... They're just forced to go. They're like, nah. So, with the help of other scientists and fishermen, the Sagawa initiated research into a tank-based system for the production of nori. Through temperature control, scientists figured out how to spur the for fire spores from one life stage to the other. Once they release the spores, then they are reintroduced to the sea for growth in the leafy stage. So, they get it's back like, to their home after. They're like, tran- it's, um, it's a like, transplant. It's a cutting. It's a transplant. Yeah. Oh, it's so cute. Right? So, it's... Actually so cute. There is one town in Korea, or not in Japan. I don't, oh gosh. There's one town in Japan that actually has a statue of this lady because they're so grateful for like her research. That's so cute. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So seaweed growers from Japan across to China and other Southeast Asian nations use the same method to harvest nori. So massively significant. That's so, yeah, great, of course. Now we are going to take one further stop and this is just a cute one because I thought, <laughs> and I mean, also kind of, I think a nice note to end on is like showing how, like, oh, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Miyuk cook seaweed soup in Korea for three weeks after the birth of your baby. The mother is supposed to drink the soup four to five times a day. Seaweed is supposed to be good for recovery. It cleans the blood, makes the hair glossy and black, and it's full mm-hmm. of calcium and iodine. But often young mothers become tired of this before the three week period is over. <laughs> and you have many grandmothers scolding them and trying to force them to eat. Um, these force the young mothers to drink this soup. So it's often served on birthdays, perhaps to remind one of the day he was born. When oh. this is served, someone often asks, whose birthday is it today? So that's, I think, a really nice note to end on there. It's just mm. like, so algae is so central to our lives. And yet we're having it described in this really like othering way. Yes. And I'm glad we've gone on this voyage together. Disembark now, lady. Ah, <laughs> uh, incredible. I love it. Thank you. Just like taking another look at, uh, yeah, pond scum. The something that is often overlooked. Truly. And like, I mean, so much I think of like food history is the things that we overlook it's like Mm -hmm. the little silly like bits and bobs that we put into our mouth when we're really desperate yeah the 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 food stuff that's been there forever in the background of our diets because it's the things forced to the back of the pantry shall we say (laughs) anyways that's all i got for you so go eat some seaweed snacks everybody yeah ooh, those little crispy packets crispy packets i know that that is a result of the advent of paper making i love it yeah i love it Okay, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your foes. And uh, follow us on Instagram, Pantry Staples Pod. Incredible. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you in a bit. Bye. Bye.